Alcohol Tipping Point is brought to you in partnership with Speak Studios and Speak Boise. Speak Boise is a community-driven studio space where voices from all walks of life can speak and be heard. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at Speak Studios, Speak Boise, and at their website, speakstudios.com. Speak Studios, speak and be heard. This podcast is also brought to you by Instant Imprints. Promote better with Instant Imprints. Instant Imprints are Boise's visual communications experts and your place for everything you need to promote your business, club, school, or group. As a locally owned business, Instant Imprints specializes in making your organization more visible with custom branded apparel, embroidery, promotional items, print services, and wide format printing for signs, as well as banners and vehicle graphics. Want better ways to get noticed? Visit Instant Imprints at instantimprints.com slash Boise or call 208-IMPRINT. That's 208 467 Seven four six eight. Need help growing your business? It's what you don't know that will cost you. Tulu Peer Advisory Groups is here for every stage of business growth. Find out more at taloo.com. Welcome back to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I'm your host, Debbie Maisner, and today we have a special guest, Kenneth Watson Jr., uh, founder of 12 Faces of Sober. Um, and so I want to thank you, Kenny, right? You go by Kenny. Yes, I do. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on and just sharing your story and what you do. So let's just first start just a little warm up. Like, where are you calling from? Um, first, Deb, I would like to say thank you for oh, um, it's definitely yeah. an honor for, uh, you know, being a guest on Alcohol Tipping Point. I really do appreciate it and allowing me to uh, share my story. Well, thank you. And um, so I'm calling uh, currently from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. This is uh, where I have uh, been residing now the last two years. I was actually born here uh, back in uh, 1979 and left about when I was four months old and uh, decided to move back when I uh, turned 40. So I'm getting to know my birth city. Nice. In a warm, warm area. That's fantastic. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> well, first kind of share for our listeners um, a little bit about yourself, um, who you are and what you do and how that relates to alcohol. Um. Well, like I just mentioned, uh, I'm, I was born uh, here in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, but uh, my dad was uh, in the military, so we moved around uh, uh, just a little bit. But we ended up pretty much spending the last part of his career in uh, San Diego, California, where he uh, retired there and uh, did 20 years uh, in the Navy. And um, I'm the youngest of uh, five kids, um, two brothers, two sisters. And um, basically, I... You know, had a, you know, regular childhood. Uh, my parents, um, they, you know, didn't, if, if they got into any type of altercations or anything, we, we pretty much didn't know about it. My dad was uh, in the alcohol. And so I, I started to see that as a young kid. Um, I can remember probably going back to when I was about five years old. My dad would um, send me to the, the kitchen, to the refrigerator, get him a beer. I crack it open, take a sip off of that. <laughs> 
run back into the uh, the den and bring him his beer as if like I never even tasted it. So um, I didn't actually get drunk until my very first time. I was 12 years old, and um, a buddy of mine he had actually spent the night, and um, you know just trying to be cool and doing something different. And I was like, okay, well you want to try this alcohol? And of course he didn't want to, but I was like, well you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. So one shot led to about 10 and I pretty much was throwing up all over my floor and I vowed to never drink again. <laughs> but that changed because, right. you know, once I got into high school, I was an athlete. So after each game, you know, 10 o'clock, you know, I would go to someone's house, shower and get ready to go to a house party, which in which I drank. So I played football and basketball throughout high school. So every weekend I was getting drunk pretty much. So that's pretty much how my high school went. My, the, the teachers, they, they pretty much doubted me. Didn't think that I was going to, you know, wasn't going to graduate high school because I got to a point where I didn't really care too much for school. It was just like, I just wanted to play sports, typical jock, but I was very smart, but I just kind of grew out of school at an early, you know, when I was probably like a sophomore in high school. Um, so I decided, you know, I was still recruited to play football, but I was more into partying, drinking, uh, you know, like I said, I live in San Diego. So I spent my, my college years in a uh, party in Tijuana, Mexico. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, oh, yeah. that party. <laughs> that that party city. So I spent my first two years uh, outside of college um, or in college um, partying there, and I it was always a dream of mine to go to a historically black college. So that dream was fulfilled. I did a year at a Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta, Georgia, back in 1999, and then I wasn't able to get registered, and then I went to back to San Diego, struggled a little bit. And then my family moved to Minnesota where I enrolled at a St. Cloud State University where I both, you know, I got my bachelor's and my master's, uh, master's degree. Um, like I said, uh, in radio broadcasting with the emphasis in um, ethnic studies. And uh, my master's degree was in strategic media communications. And let's see what else. But where the alcohol really stemmed, where it became truly a problem was I would probably say about 2004, 2005, because I had moved to Phoenix, Arizona, you know, looking for change. Uh, as I mentioned before, I was working in radio in Minneapolis, St. Paul. At that time, the market was, I think, 13. And no, I'm sorry, market 15. And Phoenix was market like 12. And so I thought like, OK, I worked in radio in Minnesota for four years. I should be able to go to a larger market and get a job right away in radio that wasn't the case like i did not see another opportunity in radio and hence that was in 2005 and this is uh, 2021 so um so i slept into a, a depression because i felt like despite the fact that i went to four colleges you know i'm back to basically going to get a job working at like a fast food restaurant not saying that i have anything against it but you know it, it got to that point but even when I applied for fast food restaurants, they told me I was just extremely overqualified sure. because of the fact that I had a degree. So um, I ended up uh, getting involved with someone that I had met when I was 15. And by this time, I was about 20, about 26, 27. And we got engaged. And 
this is when my life truly changed in terms of alcohol because she got pregnant and she ended up having an abortion. And so, like, I begged her. I was like, you know, if you get this abortion, it's going to change my life forever. Like, I'll never be the same because I will, I really wanted a child and not only a child, but with someone that I was planning on getting married to. Mm-hmm. So that happened. And then my, my world just changed from there. And eventually, um, the drinking led to me uh, spending the night in jail in uh, the Phoenix, uh, downtown Phoenix jail. I ended up losing my job. I won't mention the company, but um, I lost a, a career job and I ended up was basically homeless and I had to leave and go back to Minnesota. And then that was uh, led to my first stint in rehab. Um, and that was in Minneapolis. And it was kind of a joke. It was during the winter time. A lot of the people that was there, it was just they needed the, you know, to get off the streets and not necessarily get the help because people were doing drugs in the treatment facility. So it wasn't really, I guess it, it wasn't really my time. And so I got out that treatment and went back to drinking. And then a couple of months later, I went to the military. But I'll stop there because I don't want to like. You know, it's a, it's a long, long story, but I'll just start there. And if you have any other questions, I can I can go on or you know, however you want to. Yeah, well, I just think that's interesting. So you grew up in a military family. It sounds like it, a pretty typical um, family life. Just kind of getting those glimpses of alcohol at an early age, getting your dad beers from the fridge. Like I, I can relate <laughs> for sure. And then just partying in high school and college and then, um, having some, uh, just some, some trauma, some difficulty in your life that just started to lead you down more of a destructive path. Would you say? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It, it, um, and then also, you know, peer pressure, because when I first moved to Phoenix, I was like only drinking like Miller Lite. And mm-hmm. then my brother and his friends, they, they started to drink like malt liquor, smoking weed. And like I was I wasn't really like on that. I was just more of like, OK, I can have a couple drinks and then I'm good. So like everything altered. And so I would say on on top of that with the, the abortion, that's when, like, you know, I, I started to experience mental health, but I didn't mm-hmm. know what it was until years later when trouble got worse. But yeah, that was definitely the, the start to a very long journey of, you know, problems, needless to say. Yeah. But, but the military didn't help either. It just kind of, they put a Band-Aid over it at first, and then it was like once the Band-Aid kind of started to peel back, then the old person came out. And it was the depressed person, um, the person that was just, that didn't, you know, insecure, um, just mad at life, mad, like I'm here in the military, this is not what I wanted to do, this is not where I, you know, want to be, but it's like I don't have where to go because my family, you know, they were tired of kicking me out, me coming back in and all that stuff. And then eventually um, I had got engaged a second time. That didn't work out because of alcohol. Sunk into a deeper depression. 
And then I, the, the person I ended up marrying, she kind of knew about both of those situations, about the abortion, and she knew about the failed engagement. Well, she knew about the, both the failed engagements, and I believe to my heart that she took advantage of it. And so because I was so weak and vulnerable and in a, in a very drunk state, it was like she kind of just wiggled her way in because of the fact that I was in the military, free medical, free dental, and all that good stuff, and she was in a bad situation. And I didn't realize it until it was like <laughs> it was like too late. And, and so, but but yeah, so I, I battled my whole entire out of, um, army career as far as um, you know with alcoholism. I did another treatment facility uh, when I was in the army because I was a, a or I am a victim of domestic violence. My ex-wife was arrested for that. Um, so I had to go to treatment. I was on, I almost lost my military career in uh, 2014 because of that domestic violence that my ex-wife had did because we lived on, on the military base in Texas. And so because of that, they, it was a military, I mean, it was an alcohol related incident. So I had to go to all these drug classes before I went to treatment and I, um, went to drug, I mean, drug and alcohol classes after I got out all the way up until because they, they were just tired of me because my ex-wife would always call the police, but I would never do anything wrong. It was just the fact that I was intoxicated. So she would call, but I would never put my hands on her because to this date, there was no record of that, no arrest, no anything, no complaints from neighbors. And so I got out the army in 2015 on medical discharge and Literally the day that I signed the form saying, okay, I'm on my last, you know, last portion of my military contract. I'm no longer owned by the government. Um, I knew that the marriage wasn't going to last. And sure enough, it didn't last a year. And in that year, I had tried to work two jobs, but I wanted to put my mind on something else besides work because of what was going on in the army and what was going on at home and then how it was inappropriate relationships with my supervisor and my ex-wife. So I chose, I went to work, I worked a couple jobs. And when I say I literally quit, I just quit. Like I just, just decided not to go back to work. And then I went to another job. I worked there for about a month and I just got bored and stopped going to work and I got fired and I was okay with it. And so I haven't worked since December, 2015. And so, um, I, I came back to Minnesota because, uh, I knew that I couldn't get treatment in Arizona where me and my now at the time my ex-wife was living. And so, I, I, I spent nine days in the hospital because my pancreas almost exploded from drinking in excess. I decided to go to Minnesota and get treatment through the VA. And then that's when my life like completely changed. And I'll stop there. If Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it sounds like you had kind of, tried different things, either you weren't ready to stop at that time, um, but also that you were in an unhealthy relationship and then just mentally, like, they, you had not addressed, like you said, depression and some insecurities and just your own mental health. Right. 
So what finally helped you quit drinking? Well, as I just mentioned, I the number one thing was when I came back to Minnesota, this was uh, November, November of 2015, and I was on like a binge, and I was, you know, just running through money. I was drinking. I was spending like $100 in a cab to go to the casino, then $100 in the cab to get, you know, get a ride back home. I was blowing two and $300 a night at the casino. It's all different things. And then like one night or one morning I had went out or went to the casino and came back. And then I woke up and I, you know, clearly was still, you know, clearly still drunk because I got home at like maybe like five or six o'clock that morning. And my mom was like, how, you know, what can I do to help you? And when she made that, that, that question, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, trying to come off of a long night of drinking. And then she followed that with, I don't want to bury my son. And when she said that, it, it felt like, all right, this is real life. Like, this isn't something that's just playing around, like your mom's talking about death. So I started to, to, to take it a little bit more serious. But I still drink. I drink all the way up until like literally like four hours before I went to treatment and I went to treatment, uh, big shots out to the St. Cloud regional, uh, VA, um, in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Uh, I did 30 days there. Best experience I would, uh, would have to say, because I did, uh, two, two other rehabs, a homeless shelter in Phoenix. And that one is the one that like completely changed my life. And, the reason why I say that is because, because of I, because of the fact that I had already been to treatment before, and kind of knew what the program was, I knew what I needed to do, and regardless of whatever I tell these people, it's not going to matter. I have to produce the results. So anything that I said I was going to do, that's what I did. So while I was in there, I um, I applied for uh, grad school after having a conversation with my mom again because she didn't get the opportunity to go to school um, or she dropped out of school because she had uh, a pregnancy, I think, at like 15. And so she stopped you know, going to school. So I just, for me in my heart, I just felt like I needed to continue my education. And as I mentioned earlier, when I first got out the military, that's what I really wanted to do was just go to school and just put my time into it. And so that's what happened. I applied to grad school at St. Cloud State again uh, on a Tuesday, got accepted on a Thursday. And then like maybe two weeks later, once I, well, no, once I completed my treatment program, I got keys to my apartment. Two days after that, my all my furniture that I had in uh, Phoenix because I my ex wife didn't get anything except for the Christmas tree. I took all the furniture out of the house, but um, so I all my fr- all the furniture got delivered from Arizona, and then I had a fresh start. And so it was like all these things happened just within 30 days time frame and so i was like okay so I, here i am i'm 37 back on office where i can honestly say now i ran wild 
And I don't know for sure if you're familiar with St. Cloud, but they have a, they're pretty good in hockey. That That's what they're for. Oh, okay. For, Divi- for Division One hockey. And so I go back there. I'm having all these flashbacks, memories, and everything. And so I, some of my old advisors, they were still there. So I asked them, I said, hey, do you guys still go to South Africa and do, like, do the study abroad? And so they're like, yeah. So I went ahead. I did um, a study abroad at Nelson Mandela uh, Nelson Mandela University in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. The VA, which is the Veterans Administration, they paid for that trip. I got money put in my pocket. So the blessings just continued. And then also when I was in South Africa, my ex-wife was served with divorce papers. So <laughs> I would just say that it was just continuous things that just kept happening to where it was just like I like this this might actually work for me and so i just you know i woke up i'm sober i woke up i'm sober it's six months i woke up it's a year and then so on and so forth so forth and so now i you know finished my master's degree in basically three semesters and during that time i you know was was doing community work in the uh, in the city of st cloud sponsored by the mayor of St. Cloud and the police chief of St. Cloud. And so I did that um, as well. I DJed parties for the community and things like that. And so it was just more, you know, things upon things upon things. And during my grads, during the grad program, like that first semester, a lot of the students were like, hey, Kenny, you know, well, you know, what made you want to go back to school? And I'm like, I don't have anything else to do with my life. So I might as well go ahead and get more education. But they're like, no, we want to know your background. So I started to share some of my past struggles with alcohol and how life is different and I'm just getting sober. And they're like, wow, you know, you have a story. You should put it on paper. And so I was like, oh, and and a light bulb went off because here I am back on the same campus. Somebody's telling me I should write a book. But in 2002 on, on St. Cloud State's campus, I was having that discussion with a buddy of mine about writing a book. So it just kind of came into fruition, but it was just a whole lot, you know, years later or 13, 14 years later on the same campus. But now I'm talking about not about dating women, but now I'm talking about my road to recovery. Mm -hmm. And, and so I went ahead and I put together this book um, and the book is called 12 faces of sober. And it pretty much, it goes through, um, in more detail, pretty much what I've just discussed with you uh, this evening. And it talks about when I started drinking, uh, school, college, you know, moving around, bad relationships, and uh, that it's been out now, I would say about a year. Um, this August, I, I released it on my birthday. So it's been out for about a year. And I've uh, been getting good response. I was a couple, um, a couple of, um, sections off from hitting the 100 best top seller on Amazon. So hopefully I can get you know back to that this summer. I'm just going to switch up some marketing things. So that's the goal. But with that, it evolved into a podcast, which I have that I do every Sunday, and it's called uh, 12 Faces of Sober Speaks Podcast. Initially, it was going to just be, you know, interviewing people in road to recovery, but I decided to open it up to authors as well, community activists, 
and you know people that are making a difference in the community so not just necessarily focusing on just the sober community so i can kind of bring it all in and with the with the podcast and just you know changing you know rebranding my social media to just 12 faces of sober that i've i've been able to mentor and help a lot of people not necessarily be a sponsor but just some you know something where you know, I can be a sounding board to, you know, people that I went to college with, as well as, you know, individuals in the Army and, you know, perfect strangers. Well, that's fantastic. So, I got to ask you, where the where does the name come from? Um, 12 comes from, as I mentioned earlier, that the first time I got drunk, 12. And then the faces was when I was in treatment. I was like, it, it was kind of like a running joke. Because well, not really running joke, but it was more or less like they they had like describe your emotion. So like each day you had to give like a different face. So it was like, and I just you know I can sum up like like the, I have to find the picture, but just sum up the faces. And in, in some of my chapters in my book, I actually labeled like sad face, and then it just goes into detail about certain things. But that's pretty much what it was. It was just twelve faces of sober because initially. It was going to be 12, year, uh, 12 years of sobriety versus the first 12 months. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, 12, 12 years of alcoholism versus the first 12 months of sobriety. But by the time I completed the book, I was already two years in of sobriety. And then I wanted to include that. So that's what I did. And so so that's pretty much where the 12 faces of sober came from. A lot of people think that it's associated with like the the 12 um the 12 step program but it has nothing to do with that yeah i've i love that because it i mean faces like how you're describing them are your different emotions and the feel and, and feel i mean when you aren't numbing out then you have to feel everything and that goes the gamut from joy to sadness um great Great name. Love it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, let me ask you, because I don't get a lot of men on the show or um, people who've been in the military or, or just black men. So what do you think is uniquely challenging just being a, a black man uh, veteran uh, that has dealt with addiction and mental health. Like, can you talk a little bit about that and, and just the stigma? Because there, there's, there's always, there already is such a big mental health stigma and asking for help and admitting you have a problem. But when you layer um, those additional things on top of it, it creates even a different bit of a stigma too. See, the, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. And thanks for asking the, as I mentioned earlier, growing up, I, my parents split up a lot. Mm -hmm. I, you know, my dad was, you know, as they say, Papa was a rolling stone. So there was a lot of times where he chose the streets over his own family. And so a lot of times we didn't have Thanksgivings. A lot of times we didn't have Christmases. I was frustrated, I was anger, I was spiteful towards my father, but I couldn't, you know, and, and it, it's, I guess you can say, it's 
put it like this, a lot of times black families don't talk about these type of things. It's mm-hmm. more or less like they're made fun of, like the drunk uncle. You know, you know, the you know, like for for I'll use myself as an example. Like I might come to a party peaceful, mm-hmm. but I might be coming out leaving that party somewhere, you know, a totally different person. So I I would say that I didn't really know why I was having these emotions, why I was having these outbursts until I got into the military and started going to counseling, started to get like some type of understanding or a better thought process of or how to cope with, you know, a loss of a life or, you know, how to cope with the real world. Because it's sad to say the military doesn't necessarily prepare the the, the service members to get out into the real world. They, they rush a, a program or these are things to do uh, like your last week of being in the military, but that's not enough time. They don't really have these workshops where they express that you need to have, you know, go and, you know, they, they have it where you can, you know, go ahead and, and enroll in the various medical programs, but they don't stress the fact that you need to, you know, if you have trauma from being deployed, if you have trauma, something that happened just within your military career, be sure to go there, mm-hmm. go to mental health, go get, it's not something that's stressed. I, I'm, and I, I'm very serious because I sat in the class for a whole week and was like, okay, now looking back at it, it, it wasn't offered anyway. And so I would say that there it's a lot of, a lot of times the veteran is not educated on all the, the programs that are out there to, to be offered. And there are a, a percentage of people out there that just don't want the help. And as far as veterans, and like I said, I can only speak for myself on that. But in terms of like the black community, I think that mental health is, has been something that has been addressed a lot lately, mm-hmm. but it wasn't something that was addressed 10, 15, 20 years, if not prior to that in the 90s. This wasn't something because I was having, I was traumatized as a child and did not know that I could have been going to counseling at that age because we weren't we weren't taught that. It might be different in other people's households, but it wasn't something that was taught in mine. So I take advantage of it now. I've been in counseling, like I said, ever since, um, consistently since uh, 2016. And it definitely works. But as far as, like I said, I, I don't know. I think the, it's, I'll, I'll, okay, I, I, I got it. It's, it's almost like I can give you uh, an example. Like sometimes when when something happens, uh, like if a, a white person commits a crime and the first thing that they do is they go to mental health. And a lot of times they get off just based off of that mental health, that right there being diagnosed. The same thing, if a black person does it, it's harder to be, get off on that same crime 
than it, you know, being a black person. So I don't know if that's a good enough example, but that's kind of like what what black people face sometimes when it comes to the the whole mental health, and it's 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 frowned upon, and it shouldn't because you you get to get out whatever your frustrations are, but we're not taught that because a lot of a lot of families are not taught to be affectionate and to to be expressive with your feelings. Yeah. And you, I, I actually had um, Dr. Britt Speaks, um, who is a, a an addictions counselor and researcher, and she was talking about how a lot of times, and she works more with juveniles um, in treatment centers, but how white kids, when they get caught drinking or with drugs, they go to counseling, like you were saying. And her, her brown kids were getting criminalized um, yeah. and, and punished in a different way. So, and also just how that in itself can, could prevent you from admitting that you have a problem and you need help as well. Because there, there is that fear of criminalization. You, that is, listen, I, I, for, for 10 seconds, I was working on my Ph.D., <laughs> but that that pretty much yeah it's it's very true it's sad because you know in, instead of sending kids to behavioral health classes maybe they should try to see you know okay what what's really getting this kid you know what's getting this kid off track what's getting this kid not interested in school what's getting this kid to be acting out in class so sure you know, but yeah, that that's a, a very good point. Well, with our time left, what what would what would your top advice be to anyone listening about quitting drinking, about changing their relationship with drinking? It is definitely possible to stop drinking. I'm living proof of it. I. I had to, you know, be at the mercy of just myself. I had to be honest with myself in terms of that I had a problem with alcohol. And I knew that if I wanted to be alive, if I wanted to have the trust with my family and not be like the laughing stock of my friends, that I needed to make the change. And it, my, my life has been different ever since I completely stopped drinking. With each day, the days get better. They don't get worse. And I had to understand that I can live life without alcohol. Alcohol doesn't make me live. And so it's not easy to get sober. But for myself... It was for my health issues. I had, you know, got diabetes or diagnosed with diabetes because of the fact of my past drinking. At one point, I had high blood pressure. So I think that the, you know, yes, it may sound good to drink now in your 20s, but it does have some health effects when you start to get in your 40s. And I'll be 42 this year, so I think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, you do. Well, and you, you are such an inspiration and 
um, such a message of hope and, and just showing that, yeah, you can, you can not only just like live a life without alcohol, but, but thrive. You're really thriving and you're helping people. So thank you so much for coming on and being there. I do appreciate it. Remind everyone where they can find you and your book. Um, my book, you can go on 12 Faces of Sober. You can uh, click on the, the three tabs in the right corner and then click on Order Now. That's for you to get a signed copy of 12 Faces of Sober. I also have uh, merchandise on their uh, 12 Faces of Sober t-shirts, just the actual title, as well as the book cover. I have coffee mugs, neck gaiters, awesome. stickers, and so on and so forth. Also, on uh, you can follow me on Instagram. Like I said, 12 Faces is Sober. You can follow me on Instagram, 12 Faces is Sober as well. Uh, YouTube, 12 Faces is Sober. I actually upload my podcast on there. And that's it. Oh, and then, like I said, if, if you want to, uh, you know, for future interviews or anything like that, I can be reached at 12 Faces is Sober at gmail.com. I usually get back within 24 hours. And once again, Deb, thank you, thank you, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart uh, for allowing me to share my story with you guys. Or I'm sorry, on your podcast, uh, you're you're doing positive things as well. I do follow you and <laughs> thanks, nothing Kenny. But, uh, yeah, the best the best success with uh, with your podcast and your show, and you're doing really good things for for people in uh, in sobriety and those who need the help to to get to this point yeah thank you i mean that's that's one thing we've learned you know we're stronger together and to recover out loud yeah definitely all right okay that was my long pause so that it can end there that was great i I, I, I kind of figured that that's why i didn't that's why i didn't say anything (laughs) I feel like we could talk more about um, just the, the the military and just being black and being a man. Like, I don't get a lot of male perspective. And um, okay. I mean, sometime, if you ever want to do another interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, listen, I, I am I am very game to it. All you got to do is just say the word because I. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I love, like, talking about, like, those things because there's a lot of there's a lot of people that that are, like, they, they go through some really messed up stuff mm-hmm. in the military. Yeah, and, yeah. I was just, I had pulled up a few stats. We didn't really get to get into it, but mm-hmm. I was reading that uh, one of the stats I had was among recent Af- Afghanistan and Iraq veterans, 63% that were diagnosed with substance use disorders also met the criteria for PTSD. Um, But, and like you said, just a huge um, concern in veterans and just post-care and lack of resources or like knowledge and man, so much. I, I actually, I'm a nurse too. And I started my career at the VA here in Boise. Okay. So, okay. Well, we, I will let you go. Enjoy your Friday night. Watch beautiful sunset. (laughs) Thank you so much. So I will post on um, 
Instagram. And like I said, it drops in on Wednesday. And let me know if you have any questions, if anything comes up and feel free to promote away. Okay. Thank you, Deb. I really do appreciate it. Again, thank you. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Uh, you have a good night as well. You too. Bye. Goodbye. Soul Ease, a personal spa and lifestyle boutique. At Soul Ease, you will enter into a relaxing environment. You can rest in mind, body, and soul with a day spa experience. Discover world-class skincare treatments using French and Hungarian techniques, organic and natural skincare, along with modern technologies. Whether you're visiting us for one session or multiple times, here will be a personal spa experience to relax and recharge your soul. Soul Ease is conveniently located near downtown Boise in the North End on North 28th Street across the street from Lowell Elementary School. Follow them on Instagram at soul underscore ease underscore Boise, Facebook at soul ease, or check out their website at www.soul-ease.com or call 208-994-1480 to reserve your next appointment. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys, so please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time. <laughs>